Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. The Federal Reserve has raised the benchmark interest rate by 25 basis points to 5.25%. This move comes amid America's ongoing debt ceiling crisis and further regional bank woes. Today, we're joined by fixed income portfolio manager Jeff Moore, who shares that despite these challenges, the bond market itself is not seeing a deep downturn or recession in the near term. With host Brian Vorsikowski, Jeff also unpacks the key indicators he is keeping an eye on for guidance on where markets are heading. Also, which asset classes within fixed income are a good complement to an equity portfolio. Based out of Fidelity's Merrimack, New Hampshire fixed income headquarters, Jeff manages several fixed income funds for Canadian investors, including Fidelity Multi-Sector Bond Fund and the Fixed Income Subportfolio of North Star Balanced Fund, among others. Also today, Jeff stresses the importance of flexibility in fixed income allocations. All of this and more coming up on today's podcast, which for context was recorded on May 4th, 2023, and was originally presented as a webcast for institutional investors. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Jeff, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So obviously the big news this week is the Federal Reserve's uh, rate increase. Is it going to be the last one for a while? Will there be a cuts? What do you make from, uh, from the increase and what they said in the aftermath of that? Yeah, so our take is that this is the last rate um, increase for a while. We would need a really bad data to force the Fed to go higher again. So we think the Fed is kind of done here, kind of like the Bank of Canada. They found their spot and they're going to sit there. Even though inflation is still sticky in the U.S., in particular in owners' equipment rent, which might fall at some point soon, and wages, Fed, I think, saying we're going to stick here for a while and, and then see where inflation is in three and six months. What was interesting in his comments is that uh, Jerome Powell said, we're not going to cut. Yet, the bond market is still pricing in a cut in July. I guess, number one, why do you think he said that? And, and why is there this difference between what the bond market is looking at and what the Federal Reserve is saying? Well, I think for, if you're Jerome Powell, this is, was a great chance just to be, ca- be cautious. Just be very cautious. Say there's no cuts coming. And then at least you don't have to probably raise rates even further. So. You keep sort of that animal spirits at bay would be his hope. But what's, what's the bond market doing? Why do they have 25 basis point cut for July? More than anything else, you have to look at the big picture, pull out a second and say, if the Fed's done, what's the next big trade in the market? And the next big trade in the market is a yield curve steepener. So we've had this inversion for a while. So when the Fed's yanking rates up, the most obvious thing is the yield curve inverts. And we had an inversion of like, almost one and a quarter percent, two thirties. Today, that's flat, pretty much flat. In a normal world, normal, which is say the Fed's sort of sitting on the sidelines, you know, not doing a lot, maybe going up a rate, a notch, down a notch, but not really going anywhere. In a normal world, that yield curve slope is 100 to 200 basis points steeper, which is another way of saying 
that the bond market's going, hey, the steepeners were 7 to 14% return, just having the steepener on. And it probably happens over the next 12 months. So if you're an investor, you're not really calling for July as a cut. You're just, that's just how this sort of, um, the bootstrapping's working. You're really calling for a steep. So what, is, what, what does that mean then? Because I think there was, you know, this expectation that the yield curve inverted means a recession is coming. We haven't seen that recession yet. Does, you know, the, the fact that we're now going on pause and just the indicators that you're seeing, could there still be a recession? What are you looking at? Well, the yield curve inversion generally means the Fed's yanking rates up. And, and when the Fed raises rates, it usually induces a recession. So, so that was what the market was calling for, and rightly so, right? And if you look at a couple sectors in the economy, they feel like they're in a pretty steep recession right now. I would say, though, what the market's looking at right now, what are we looking at? We're looking at credit spreads. Credit spreads today are sort of in that 50th percentile. So in the last couple of decades, this is about the average amount of spread versus governments you've been paid, which is to say that you're not being compensated for a hard landing. If you think there's a hard landing coming, credit spreads have to be much wider. Just to give you a, a, a quick thought, two sectors, real estate and regional banks, are trading at their 100th percentile. The rest of the sectors are pretty much trading at their 30th or 40th percentile. Certainly not indicative of a hard landing at the broader economy. Could there be is it a soft landing? I mean, not, not to predict, but sort of... What's your view on on what well, you know? You know how I feel about this. I think that when the Fed raises rates, they're like a bull in a china shop, and they're going to break stuff. They've started breaking stuff. I think other things will break. Whether or not we'll have every sector go into full recession, that's a little that's a high bar. But could we see a couple more sectors slip, like uh, real estate and regional banks? Absolutely. Well, regional banks, that, you know, that was the other big news this week with J.P. Morgan buying First Republic. Are, is the regional banking crisis, is this the end of the regional banking crisis or just the beginning? Uh, it's hard to know because it's been up and down and quiet and now back in the news. Where are we? So I don't think it's the end of the regional banking crisis. The hard part here, right, we go all the way back to crisis 2008, you know, regulators, governments tried to fix that problem from 08. And along the way, they came up with these ideas, too big to fail. Uh, stress testing. By mistake, in the U.S. in particular, we have two levels of banks, safe banks and the other ones. So, and the problem with regional banks is they're inferior goods, just from first-year economics. And you know that inferior goods just don't survive. And at least if they do survive, they have no pricing power. And so that we, we gave the big banks this get-out-of-jail-free card. We didn't mean to. We, we called it SIPI, too big to fail, but it became get-out-of-jail-free card. And we did not give that to the regional bank. So my sense of things right now, if you're a regional bank, you got to become a super regional quick or go to a community bank. But the middle's going to be gone at some point. And we're just watching this Pac-Man approach to all those regional banks that are caught in the middle. And the problem with being caught in the middle, right, is you're probably a regional bank that's done a great job of everything. But now when it comes to a line of credit, which treasurer is going to go and say, I'm going to get a line of credit from the regional bank? is you're not going to, be able to look at your board and say, hey, I got this line of credit from Regional Bank X. Your board's going to say, how about you get it from a SIFI? Because we may need that, that, that bank line at some point. And so all of a sudden, the business opportunity just falls. The NIM falls. And then the reason for the bank to exist, which is for equity holders, right? That's, we're not, this isn't government. This is for if equity holders see no reason for the business to exist, it can't exist. What happens is the U.S. banking system start looking like Canada, where you have you know five six major banks, and that's kind of it. Is that is that what we can expect? Yes. 
<laughs> yes, I think you you hit it in the head. Not now, but longer term. Yeah, and and yeah. and and so the regional banks is a crisis at the banking system. This is the anti OA, right? And I said this before. There's no widespread crisis in the United States, but there are certain parts of the the economy that have been hit by the Fed raising rates so much, and and that those groups have been exposed. It will be really hard to put this sort of genie back in the bottle. What are your expectations going forward with inflation? Right. So Chair Powell rightly has said that, you know, it's going to be hard to cut rates because inflation is a little bit higher than he thought it would be. In fact, if you're the Fed and you're sort of your inflation number by end of year was 3.8, was that was your hope, you're behind the pace right now. You know, we're averaging four, four and a quarter. So not too far behind the pace, but certainly behind the pace. Unlike the Bank of Canada, where they, you know, they have the same kind of forecast, but they're a little bit ahead of the pace. And so the way I, I've talked about this to clients is the U.S. is on a green run, the old you know, skiing run. It's not really much downhill. Inflation has peaked. We think it was last year. Goods inflation's rolled over. Commodity inflation's rolling over. Having said that, owners' equipment rent and wages are still high. And mm-hmm. so we're on the green run, which is to, is to say that the Fed can maybe stop raising rates, but it can't cut them. The Bank of Canada, I would argue, is more on a blue run. So they actually will have wiggle room at some point if they need to take it. Right. But, I, I, you know, in, in Canada, we haven't sort of seen mortgage rates roll over yet. The real estate sector here is with rate rising rates is, is more vulnerable than real estate in the States. So could that mean Canada could take an action that's different than the States uh, earlier on? I, I think that is a, a very important point. If you think about in OA, 60% of mortgages in the U.S., this is individual mortgages, where fixed rate, Danny, Freddie, Ginny, and the rest were uh, often arms, which is what the Canadian system is. And a lot of the, the U.S. system back then wasn't conforming mortgages. These were higher risk mortgages, Altays, all those things. That was a, a, a vulnerability to us. Fast forward to today, it's like 98% or 99% of U.S. mortgages today are fixed for 30 years. So this rate rise from Chair Powell, for the average for 90 something percent of Americans who have a, a, a mortgage, they haven't noticed it at all because they still got 30 years to go at two and a half percent yield uh, on their mortgage. They're loving them. They can't move house, but that's the definition. In Canada, unfortunately, it's an arms market. And, you know, one of the things that happens at reset is you can guarantee your principal, your, your total payment for two years, but you don't know the, the breakdown between P and I inside of that. And so something like 20 percent of Canadian uh, mortgages that are on the short end are already in IO only, which means those Canadians are renting from their house. And if this continues, some of those Canadians will actually be borrowing from their future and they'll be adding debts to the back end of their mortgage. And I think that's where it gets tough. I, so I think uh, Canada, it's not just Canada, Canada, England, the Netherlands, Germany, and, and the Swedes have the same kind of arm system. And this is coming through the system. And it's a little bit of a delayed steal. The uh, the other I guess the other big news of states is is the debt ceiling seems to be picking up steam in in the media and just more people more people's minds. We've been we've seen this story before where the governments are sort of battling back and forth over whether to raise the debt ceiling. How concerned should we be? So I would say that even if you want to be concerned, I don't know what you're going to do about it. I wouldn't know what to, to guide you to do. If you said I know you're going to default. And even if I was told, I would say, okay, now, okay, well, now what? Because the problem is this isn't just some individual. This is the risk-free note for the, for the United States defaulting. Banking systems, 100% of GDP 
depends on the risk-free note. All of Americans do. And then the global system has enormous U.S. presence. Now, this, we've had this only for like 40 years since President Kennedy. I, I'm going to say this one's going to be handled the same way. There will be a negotiated settlement. There'll be a kick the can down the road. I think President Biden is a, is a very astute politician. And because of that, he knows how the game's played. He knows how much you can battle for. And then at the same time, at what point does he just stop playing the game? So I think that'll work out. I'll also say this, like, I know there's people say, oh, the debt ceiling is terrible. Why don't we get rid of it? If you're the House of Representatives, you should never get rid of the debt ceiling. This is the only way to force the president to come back and talk to you. Because remember, the House is supposed to be the place where all legislation starts. It's endowed with massive power. And yet it's been usurped by the presidential suite. In a lot of ways, just like the prime minister versus his own caucus, right? The power differential is massive. And the only way to get the president to come back is, is through debt ceiling. So I would, if I were there, I, I understand why there is a debt ceiling. It gets the president to come back to the table. And maybe you get a few goodies if you're a house member. Good. Okay. So you're not, too, you're not concerned. So I, 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 you know, I don't see any panic on your face. So I'll take that as a good sign. I won't worry then. So just, just moving on to the bond market and, and, you know, your mandates, where are you finding opportunities today, given, you know, it's still a pretty wild environment. Right. So the good news is there's a lot of yield in the marketplace. So we still, we really like the yield, especially versus last year. So where are we finding places to go? So portfolios are yielding comfortably over 6%. And we are not even close to putting our back into it. We've pretty much taken our, our below investment grade way down, high graded the portfolio, waiting for great opportunities. Because again, sort of that 30th to 50th percentile spread just doesn't do it for us. We think that something else could break and we want to be able to take our clients and go get those sectors when it happens. We've way, way increased the number of treasuries in the portfolio. Uh, well, the highest level I've ever had because we're putting a steepener on and, and we want to be right where the sort of the fulcrum is, which I think is seven to 10 year. In fact, I'll say this. I think the aggregate bond benchmark is ground zero for the highest total returning benchmark in the next 12 months, just because that's the benchmark that sticks duration that should enjoy the most steepening. This is its chance to stay in the sun, that benchmark stay in the sun. And so we, we're there in a, in a big way. Globally, we, we're looking for a few pieces here and there, but you know how we do it globally. We're very careful. We look at it very much like a precision hits rather than doing something more generic. So what, if, if you're, if you're, you know, in treasuries more than you have been in the past, what does that mean kind of for the risk profile of your mandate? This must be much less risky. Um, do you need to take, you know, are there areas to take more risk to get more yield or is it not there? So it, in terms of credit risk, it, our, our risk is way, way down. Our tracking year is way down. You know, the hard part, and this is, you know, as, as we're all practitioners here, it's which one thing to say, okay, high yields of beta. You can buy beta. If you're the actual person building a portfolio of high yield today, it's extraordinarily difficult. And I actually, I'm going to pick on bank loans for a second. The bank loan market yields 10.5%. That's our one of our biggest positions. We really like bank loans here. A 10.5% yield, that's a percent a month. You got to hate You've got to think that everything's going to default and soon to think you're going to make any money shorting that. That's way too high return. Here's the problem. When you talk to the bank teams that are building it, the credit teams, the bank loan market is made up of bonds that yield 8 and 14%. to get you to 10 now. This has become a much more tricky problem. And so the way I look at that, and 
because for my clients, you know, we, we consider ourselves multi-sector. We're not into anyone. I said, just go buy the 8%, 9% stuff. You don't have to go buy all the 14 stuff uh, in terms of bank loans. You can go, we can go pick our spot. And then if you see a great chance in, in one of those 14 percenters where that management team's found a way to take control, then let's go get those as well. So we're playing it with a very opportunistic eye, but I would not want to just go buy a straight up benchmark here because it could, you could look at the beta and say one thing and then just go, how come my returns don't look like what I was thinking? So the title of our, our chat today is uh, we're talking about flexibility. What does that mean to you? What, what, how do you remain flexible? What does that mean? Well, the number one thing, you have lots of liquidity. We are loaded with liquidity and, and have a lot of ways to go depending on what comes next. And so, you know, when you think about regional banks and real estate, that's not an issue for us. At some point, though, we're going to want to get after some of those, especially some of the real estate names. I can tell you that it's really piquing our interest. The question is, what does that look like? How do we do that? We can actually work really well with a lot of the big REITs themselves and be sort of a solution to work with them. And so this could be a great opportunity to partner and, and our clients can benefit in a massive way. So it's, it's flexibility right now. Don't be too much into any one thing because if something goes awry, you know, you'll just wear the loss and then you won't be able to add more or take advantage of what is a opportunity. And my lesson out of 2008 when I was there is 2008 was the greatest opportunity for clients and investors to reset their total returns, to put them back on the path being fully funded. 08, I always say to people, if you didn't lose money in 08, shame on you. Because you had a chance to reset the course of time because everything was cheap. Everything is not cheap right now. We're not price for price. So my view is take what's given, leave lots of buckets open. Because if the reset does happen, if the Fed is that bull in the China shop, and if they start breaking even more sectors than they've already broken, you're going to want to take advantage of that because it could be extraordinary total returns. Not there yet, but we're watching. I'm just curious about real estate. Uh, well, I mean, to me, real estate, you know, again, impacts interest rates, commercial real estate, uh, office space is having trouble with people coming back. And why is that a place that could start looking attractive? Right. So real estate's a great example. It's, and the real estate that's under stress now is, is pretty much office space. And it's, it's downtown urban office space uh, that's really distressed. And it's really kind of affected by the fact that with COVID, a lot of people haven't returned to work. And so you've heard the number in New York that 50% of the office space is vacant. And it may be leased, but it's, you know, if you're the, the REIT, you can't drive revenues higher because when you have vacant space or you're competing against your leasee to re-rent the, the space, you can't drive it higher. And so for a, uh, a few real estate firms, they have too much debt. They got caught. They're going to have covenants. They could violate some covenants, maybe not now, but in a year or two. And, you know, this could be a great opportunity for us to help out for clients. You know, we're here to help, you know, that kind of thing. But more than that, why real estate? Because a lot of it is just a, an NPV calculation. And we can get a pretty good handle on what things are worth, uh, especially since most REITs don't have terribly big developmental pipelines, which if you think about the 1980s and 90s in Olympia, New York, it was really developmental pipelines that caught a lot of those developers. Today, a lot more of them are stabilized. It becomes, okay, I can't afford to pay 8% cap rate on our interest rates. I can pay six. What can we work with? Given that, you know, more people are in more pension funds and institutional investors are in bonds, they're probably making a lot of money uh, in interest. 
Are you finding that, uh, uh, you know, are they have to redeploy that, that those dollars? What are they kind of, what are you seeing there when it comes to kind of getting that interest and where's it going? Well, I think one of, you know, one of the questions I had from a client maybe six months ago is, how come the bond market is not selling off more? Like I said, part of the reason is we have so much coupon now that when I get a coupon, I reinvest it back in the market. So if I'm yielding 6% and I'm not even working that hard, that's half a percent a month that I just have to go buy the market. I'm buying something in the market and I'm not alone. And if you're in a bank loan and you get 10 and a half percent, you're buying the market back on average all the time. And, and so whereas a year and a half ago when we were at ones and twos, you know, it was galactic flow, you know, nothing was going on. And so for our team, we think that just the demand from interest is, is big. And so don't sleep on that because the other part is companies aren't stupid. They've pre-funded a lot of their debt. There's not a lot of new issuance in the market. And so when I get a cash flow now, it's not like I'm buying a new issue. I'm buying something that's already out in the market. So are you deploying them back? I mean, you know, are there specific areas or just across the board? I mean, you said they have a lot of money in treasuries. Is going back into that. Where do you put it? So, you know, we, we're happy, you know, having some accumulating cash at 5%, but you can't stay in cash. The problem you have is, you know, at some point the Fed's going to turn tail and cut. And when they do, your your rollover risk will be maximal in cash, right? That's why you like cash on one hand. It's a giver and it's a taker. So we we want to get the money out the curve unless we have a strong view the Fed's going to keep raising rates, which we don't. So um, we want to get money back out the curve and we really want to own sevens and tens because just that curve slope reshape is worth so much that we, we feel like we just need to be there. You mentioned just we were, we were talking before and I thought this was an interesting point you made. You actually said it's difficult to build a diversified portfolio today. Why is that? Uh, you know, that's it's this bifurcation that's just starting and it's only just starting. And so, again, when you look at bank loans, your 10.5% yield is 8 and 14, right? And so you buy 80% at 8 and 20% at 14. If you're buying those 14%, they're distressed. There's something wrong with the business, the management team. Something's wrong in the sector. And that's why they're at 14. So you, it takes a ton of research time and usually legal effort as well, just get yourself in the right part of the cap structure for those because those 14% yielding things are probably going to be in some version of default at some point, either inside bankruptcy or outside. And the reason I'm saying this is, so how does someone build a portfolio that gets you 10 and a half? If you're just buying an index, it just goes and buys them all. So we just have a couple of minutes left and and I wonder if we look at the future uh, a little bit and uh, talked about this before, but demographic issues and um, when you look sort of forward in the, you know, in the economy, what are some of the challenges or risks that maybe people on this call should be thinking about? Right. I, I think that regardless of your view of how far the Fed goes from here and whether they cut in 2023, when you look out 2026, 2027, the demographic challenges in the G10 are extraordinary. We're in population decline in all countries but U.S. and Canada. Population decline. We haven't seen that in 300 years. Like this is a, this is new. We're in labor force decline. Remember, our whole tax code is designed to tax labor, not retirees. You know, with this tax code issues that we see, or not tax code, with the labor force decline as well. If you think GDP is the number of workers times the output per person, right? If that's GDP, if the number of workers is going down, GDP is going to have trouble going up unless you're calling for a productivity miracle. 
And the U.S. is going to add, I think the number is, I, I think we're going to add 10, no, 30 million more 60-year-olds over the next 10 years. And if you think that we're going to get a productivity miracle from a bunch of 60-year-olds, I don't know if I'm believing that. I think that's, that's a stretch for me. And so when I look forward, if you think that level of GDP and interest rates kind of go together over long periods, I have real trouble seeing really high rates into the future. And if anything, I see a world that's a lot slower growing. And the places we used to go, whether it was China, you know, Germany, those kind of places, they're just going to grow slower. And that means more sectors are always in permanent recession. So what it, do you plan with that in mind or what's how do you kind of prepare for that? Well, we're spending a lot of time thinking about that. What's the future look like? And, you know, it was, you know, if I think about myself as an investor in the last 25 years, I sort of grew up with China being the engine of growth in the planet where we went from world to urban population was growing. This was an enormous story. That's not the China today. The China today is older, it's older than U.S. and Canada. And it's in population decline, 30 million a year in the next handful of years, decline in population. So the whole of Canada could go away every year in China. That's going to be really hard for China to be a fast grower. Now, it's not going to fall in the ocean. It's a $10 trillion economy. It's just the pie's not growing like it was in the last 20 years. And there's a great example. Where's your growth coming from? Great. Uh, we are at time, unfortunately. Uh, always a pleasure talking to you. But I will leave it there and we'll chat again soon. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Brian. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.